The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Well, good morning again. It is um, it's good to be here. Pastor Scott is not well this morning, so he gave me a call yesterday and asked if I had a sermon ready. And I, I thought to myself, you know, I preach a lot in the car going down the road by myself. But most of those sermons are not fit for a congregation. So I prepared something else. I want to invite you to turn to to Luke chapter 2. I'm reminded this morning because because I enjoy history that today is the 73rd anniversary of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And, um, And as we... It was on a Sunday too. As we... um, as we, of course, think about how the Lord has preserved our nation, we can also see a greater truth that, that God preserves His people, and He has always been faithful to do that. We're going to look at that a little bit in, in the character that is often um, maybe overlooked, Simeon, um, a faithful, faithful saint here in in the Christmas story. As we begin to consider Christmas in earnest this season um, and and to to try to remind ourselves of its its meaning, uh, particularly among all of the uh, the trappings, the consumerism, the the advertisements on TV, um, I I want to look here to the beginning of the New Testament um, to, to perhaps a, a passage of Scripture that is not generally associated with the with the Christmas story, but is still very, very important. Some of these truths that, that I hope to, to communicate this morning arise from a just kind of a, an overview of the general setting of, of the New Testament. Others come from a couple of its characters. Um, and, and, it's, and it's necessary to provide a little bit of background information. Um, a lot of us, uh, a lot of times myself included, when we open Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, we kind of take for granted exactly what is going on in the world when in reality the Gospels tell a story of a period of time when God began to speak again. If, if, you, uh, if you're familiar, the, the last book of the Old Testament is Malachi. And between the time of the writing of Malachi and the opening of the New Testament, there has been 400 years of uh, silence. Very difficult time, as you would imagine, for the people of God. They, they went all of this time without hearing a word from the Lord. And now the curtain opens on the New Testament to a display of majesty. When the Old Testament closes, the Israelites are still in Persian captivity. It's kind of an interesting way to end a big era on a big to-be-continued note. People have not yet been ultimately rescued. They're still in captivity. They are still slaves. After this, during that 400-year period of time, the Jewish people are, are ruled by the Greeks and, and then by the Romans. They're kind of passed on to, to whoever happens to be uh, running the block. It's a far cry from the glory days of Israel under King David. Indeed, the people are desperate 
for a Savior. They are looking for someone to rescue them. The people are fractured into groups like the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Essenes and the Sadducees, and they yearn for a rescuer to restore them to the glory that they once enjoyed. And many of you know, is often um, mentioned, particularly around Christmas time, how most of the Israelite people were looking for a militaristic, like a military leader or a nationalistic, someone who's going to unify the people and lead some kind of uprising and restore them to their glory as a physical nation. And of course, that is not necessarily the kind of savior that Jesus Christ is. We see God's sovereignty there. The first point that I want to make, it seems kind of, um, kind of uh, unnatural for me to say this, but one of the biggest points that I want to make is, is not necessarily, uh, does not necessarily come from exactly what God says here in this passage, but from the silence that happened in those 400 years. The first point is that God is sovereign in the silence. He was preparing not only a people, but a world into which his gospel would come. You understand that one, one of the most unique things ever to occur on the face of this earth was unfolding during this period of time. When the New Testament opened, the Greek language was the lingua franca, which, which just means the common language. If you lived in the, in the Roman Empire... It was pretty much a given that anyone you would ever meet in your lifetime, you would be able to communicate with. And it is into this culture that the gospel was given. It was into this culture that the New Testament was written in Greek, the common man's language, so that the gospel could easily and quickly spread. God was sovereign during this silence. He was making nations to rise and making nations to fall. Alexander the Great, the Greek emperor, even though his empire had fallen, his influence extended far beyond his empire. The people still spoke the language and they could communicate with one another. God sovereignly superintended the direction of these nations around the Jewish people to produce an environment in which people could come to know the one true God. He is sovereign in the silence. We see here also that, um, that God was preparing his people. While it does seem that during this 400-year period of time between Malachi and, and Matthew or, or the Gospels, God may have been silent on the big picture, on the, on the, the macro level. He was not faithless at all. He was never idle always preparing to make good on promises that dated back to Genesis. And I want to give a a short word before we begin in earnest, a short word of application. If you would, I know you're in Luke chapter 2, but if you would just flip back to Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, God was not silent, uh, God was sovereign during the silence of Israel, and he will also be sovereign in your silence. Verses 5 through 7 of Luke chapter 1. In the days of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly 
in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. I just want to include that because for Zechariah and Elizabeth, they had pretty much by this time, I'm sure, resigned themselves, resigned themselves to the reality that they were never going to have children, which was a big deal, far bigger than it is even today. They had no child. We learn here that God was sovereign in the silence of Israel and he was also sovereign in the silence of Zechariah and Elizabeth because many of you know the story. She was barren. She should not have been able to have children, but indeed she gave birth to John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ. We see here that it is entirely possible to be very faithful and very devout and at the same time very disappointed. But God is sovereign. I want to encourage you by way of this. God desires to show his glory in your inability. Even if God does not come through for you in the way that he came through for Zechariah and Elizabeth, he is still good. And he will still make use of your terrible situation if you will allow him. I just want to begin on that note as we begin in earnest here in Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 22. I want to encourage you to look at Simeon, a man who is painfully, sadly, unusual. Beginning in verse 22. And when the time came for their purification, is talking about uh, after the birth of Christ, after the birth of Jesus... The time came for their purification according to the law of Moses. They brought him, Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it was written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout. Take, take note of that because that is absolutely unusual. Most of the people were not like Simeon. Most of the people were not expecting the Savior that Simeon was expecting. Most of the people were not righteous and devout. And, and take note of this as well. Waiting for the consolation of Israel. Consolation, of course, means comfort. The Rescue, perhaps, if I could take a little liberty as we consider how we are going through the book of Exodus. The people still need rescue. Simeon is waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's waiting for God to make good on his promises. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ So God gave him a promise. Simeon, you will not die before the Savior comes. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. Think about the angst of this Simeon's, this man Simeon's heart. He knows he's been given this promise. He thinks to himself, I don't know. Am I going to live to see it? He held on to that promise. He said, I believe, I believe I will live to see it happen. 
He said, but now, Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Lord, you have made good on your promises. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And the sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. These are weighty, powerful Things. While Simeon is a rather obscure figure in the birth account, when you read the Christmas story, we understand that what he represents is nothing short of miraculous. The fact that he is even there in the midst of a nation who is still rebellious, still stiff-necked, still hanging on to their own works as their hope of salvation, there is Simeon, devout and righteous, waiting on the Lord, filled with the Holy Spirit. The, even the mention of Simeon, the presence, the fact that he is alive and that his heart is in the condition that it is in bears witness to the fact that God has been faithful to preserve a people. God has been faithful to preserve a righteous remnant. While most of all of Israel, you can look back through the history of the Old Testament where all of these people are wicked, they see God do something amazing, they soon turn around, God raises up a leader to preserve a righteous, a portion, a remnant, a seed, a few. And I think that we could probably learn something from that today, living in a nation that seems to be increasingly and increasingly apostate. God is faithful and he will be faithful to preserve a remnant, a portion, a people of the believing, uh, of the true, uh, a true people believing in the one true God. Simeon was waiting on a different kind of Messiah. We hear echoes here, I think. We hear echoes of Romans chapter 11. You know what it says in Romans chapter 11? That not all Israel is Israel. In other words, not all of the people who are called the people of God are genuinely the people of God. It is on the basis of faith. It is only on the basis of faith. Think about Abraham. In Romans chapter 4, Genesis chapter 12, Abraham believed God. And he counted it to him as righteousness. It has never been on the basis of which family into, into, into which you were born. It is on the basis of faith. So, so, so we see Simeon here existing in this nation that has largely abandoned God and is looking for the wrong things. And there is Simeon, righteous remnant, full of the Holy Spirit. God shows himself here to be faithful, to call, to save, and to preserve a people on the basis of their faith and for his own glory. And Simeon, of course, shows this in how he held on to that promise. And I would say that we can, we can draw a word of application from, from the life of Simeon here. The kind of faith you have is evidenced by the kind of Savior you expect. 
The kind of faith that you have is evidenced by the kind of Savior you expect. Now, you say, well, I'm not expecting a Savior, Greg. Our Savior has already come. But here's what I mean by that. While Simeon expected a Savior to to be born into the world, today we suffer under the great temptation to expect Jesus to be something other than what he is to think of him in a way that he is not, to consider that he will treat us in a way that he does not, and that he will judge the world in a way that he absolutely will not. Expectations matter. I've got a story. Uh, Some of you who know me know that I have a certain affection for Ronald Reagan. And one time he was, I think think he was a very humble guy. This is what he did when he was considering uh, running for the governorship of, of California. You know, he was kind of famous. He had been, um, he had been kind of a middle-of-the-road actor. So, so many people still knew him. He started in a lot of Westerns, of course, many of you, many of you may know. So some people kind of knew his face. He wasn't extremely popular, but he went up to, uh, he, he, w- he would take these times when he was considering, should I run or not for the governorship of, um, of California, and, and he would go knock on people's doors and just ask them, you know, here's, what, here's who I am, here's what I believe in, do you think that you would vote for me? Do you think I, you know, do you think I would be a good governor? He would do this, and, and he would not make a great fanfare about it. Uh, the only way we know about this now is because historians are writing about it, and his biographers are writing about it, and, is t- and telling us these things now. And he went to this, uh, this one particular home, and a woman came to the door and was absolutely shocked at who was at the door. And she says, I know you. I have seen your movies. Your, your, name, your name is on the tip of my tongue. Could you just, I tell you what, just give me your initials. I have this thing. I, if, if you just tell me your initials, I can, I can recall a name at any time. And, she, and he said, okay, R.R. And she said, I knew it. I never would have guessed that Roy Rogers would be at my house. (laughs) Expectations matter. And identity matters. Expectations matter. Identity matters. And of course, while that's kind of a funny illustration, we can see now that we, it it is extremely vital that we expect the right things of Jesus. I believe that, that, there is, that the main reason there is a lot of gospel confusion in the world is because there's a lot of gospel confusion in our churches. We can't expect them to understand something that we do not. Let us endeavor, let us strive to get at this thing, to understand what kind of Savior it is that we genuinely serve because only then can we worship Him rightly. While we do not today await a Messiah to be born into the world as they did then, the substance of our faith is still reflected on who we believe Jesus to be. The people then expected a Messiah who would never come. You understand, those, and there, there, are still, there are very few people who are, who are Jewish today who are Orthodox Jews. I ran into a, a Reformed Jewish couple at a place that my wife and I go a lot. And they were basically saying, we're, we're Reformed Jews and Whitney said, well, can you explain what that means to me? And they said, we basically believe you can do whatever you want to. Most, most Jews are, are absolutely um, apostate. But those who are, are still expecting a Savior who will never come. Because they have the wrong expectations. They're looking for someone who will never, ever come.
Jesus has come. The temptation today is that our expectations of who Jesus is will be off. We don't get to create our Savior in our own image. I want to outline, just by way of application, a couple of very common misconceptions in the world. And I think that probably more than we would like to admit, these misconceptions have crept into the church. First of all, many expect Jesus to be a Savior who simply forgives. I think that Jesus forgives, okay? That's why I'm here, all right? That's why I'm preaching what I'm preaching. I believe Jesus forgives, but he does not simply forgive. In other words, he does not only forgive. He forgives based on no merit of your own, but then he expects. Then he demands. Then he calls you to die to yourself. Our Savior, if you will think back to the example he gave us, Jesus did not get his crown without a cross. And today we should not expect if we are going to follow him that we will ever get our crown without a cross. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. Let's expect the right things of our Savior in this Christmas season. Secondly, many expect that Jesus is one Savior among many. And um, here's how these conversations typically go. They say, well... Um, you know, Jesus, Jesus works for you. He's true. He's true for you. There are other ways that are true. Here's where that breaks down. If someone ever says that to you, that Jesus is true for you, just say back to them, so you agree that what Jesus says is right, is true. They say, yeah, yes, it's true. It's just true for you. I say, okay, okay. So what Jesus says is true, and Jesus says I'm the only way. So, so you almost have to agree that, that Jesus claims exclusivity. You can't say that Jesus is just one way among many without also claiming that he is the only way. Whether people want to accept that or not, that is what the scriptures say. And there is no coming to Jesus apart from understanding that he is your only hope. Jesus can't just be a hope. He has to be your only hope. If you have understood Jesus to be simply a way to God, I would contend that you have not yet known him to be the way to God. The kind of faith that you have is revealed by the kind of Savior you expect. Simeon expected a Messiah who would forgive sins, Luke 1.77. Luke 1.77, uh, I'll, I'll begin in, in verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his People, note that there's already a people before there's a salvation. To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Matthew 121, you will call his name Jesus and he will save his people from their sins. Secondly, he would also bring spiritual salvation. Luke chapter 2, verse 30. We're already in Luke 2 here. It's not very far. Luke 2.30, for my eyes have seen your salvation. This is what Simeon declares also in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, which we'll not read right now. So first of all, first point, God is sovereign in the silence. God is sovereign in preserving a remnant. He preserves his people. And thirdly, 
God is sovereign in sending a son. We sang a song this morning. Wow, sovereign in sending his son. We sang a song this morning. I have to dry my paper off now. God is sovereign in sending a son. The first song that we sang together this morning called Jesus this, Israel's strength and consolation. You know where that comes from? It comes from right here. Simeon was a man who is righteous and devout, verse 25, waiting for the consolation of Israel, waiting for Israel to finally enter a time of peace, to finally be rescued. We are going through right now Exodus. What we see in Exodus is, of course, the, the, the series titled God is Faithful to Rescue. But, but what, hopefully, you are picking up on is that those rescues or the rescue that they experience, they will finally experience in Exodus is not final. That rescue that we are going to study over the next few years will be only a foreshadow of the rescue that we enjoy and celebrate right now during Christmas. That rescue has now come full in the person of Jesus Christ. I mentioned something earlier of the spiritual condition of the people of Israel in the New Test- when the New Testament opened. And, and of course, we see that these people are in need of a rescue, of a revival, of a consolation, whatever kind of adjective you would, or, or, uh, or synonym you would like to insert there. And now we see God's faithful here in, in preserving men like Simeon. This notion of a righteous remnant runs all the way back from the beginnings of the Old Testament, and we see it here today. He was waiting on God to make things right. He was waiting on God to come through on his promises and his promises to send a savior in general. He said, I will see him. His savior will come. And secondly, more specifically, you have promised me through the Holy Spirit that I will see him. And let's understand this, that Simeon trusts God based on God's incredible track record. How many times has God come through in the past? I'm going to give a couple examples. First, I'm going to give you another Ronald Reagan illustration. Peggy Noonan uh, wrote uh, a book called When Character Was King. It's a biography of Ronald Reagan. And about halfway through the book, she, she gets to a place where she says, probably the, the reason I wrote this book, that the thing that was most moving about following and studying Ronald Reagan, who I, I'm not trying to equate with Jesus, the, reason, the thing that was most moving about him is that he came through on so many of the things that he said he would do while on the campaign trail. She said, I thought as I was writing this book that this would be a good criteria to judge a president by. So as I'm writing this, I'm, I'm going to consider all the things that he promised he would do and the things that he would come through. He said, I was going to cut the inflation rate. When, he, when it peaked in the first couple months of his presidency, it was at 14.8%. When he left office, it was between 3 and 4%. He said, I would cut taxes, so he cut the top rate from 78 to 35%. He said, I'm going to kickstart the economy. It grew by one-third. How awesome would that be? The Dow Jones industrial average was at 800 when he entered office. It was at 2,400 when he left office. He said he would deregulate the federal government. So it was a big rule book, book of rules and regulations. He cut it from 87,000 pages to 47,000 pages. 
He said he would name a woman to the Supreme Court. He did. He said he would name a conservative to the Supreme Court. He did. He said he would oppose abortion. He did. He said he would create a missile defense system. He did. He said he would build a 600-ship navy, and he did. And then he said, while I'm at it, I think let's go over to Berlin and push down a wall. All of it done. But it pales in comparison. Some politician can come and promise stuff and come through on it, maybe. Historians look on him favorably, but it all pales in comparison to all of the vast number of prophecies fulfilled by the God of the Scriptures. Think of all the things that he has come through on, all the prophecies fulfilled. Simeon had reason to trust because of God's impeccable, incredible track record. He promised Abraham and Sarah a child. They got it. An inheritance. They got it. The land of Canaan. They eventually got it. He promised salvation for Noah and his family. They got it. He promised Hannah a child, and she got it. He said that Jesus would be a descendant of Abraham, Genesis 22, and and David, 2 Samuel 7, and he was, Acts 3, Galatians 3, Acts 13, Romans 1. Said that Jesus would be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7, and he was, Matthew 1, 22. Said that he would be born in Bethlehem, Matthew, uh, I'm sorry, Micah 5, and he was, Matthew 2. Said he would be preceded by a forerunner in, in Isaiah and Malachi, and he was in John the Baptist in Matthew 3 and Luke 1. Said he would be like a pro- prophet like Moses, a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, suffering servant who bore the sins of his people. Isaiah 53. And he was. And he was. And he is. So when we see things like in Isaiah chapter 9, I think these, these will be on the screen for you to follow. When we see things like Isaiah chapter 7 and chapter 9, of course, perhaps talking about a a child that's particular to their context, but also foreseeing Jesus to come in the New Testament. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Of course, we see in Isaiah chapter 9, for to us a child is given to us a Uh, To us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be on his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it. And of course we know that Jesus was born into the line of David. In Isaiah 10 and 11, we see that the people of Israel are subject to Assyria and only a few will return from their captivity. What this foreshadows, you say right now in Isaiah 10 and 11, the people of Israel are in slavery. Only a few will make it out. What this foreshadows is the righteous remnant that God will preserve as his people forever. Those who conquer, says Revelation, to those who conquer Isaiah chapter 10 says it this way. In verse 33, Isaiah 10:33, Behold, the Lord of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. He's judging his people. He's saying, Israel is a tree. I'm going to cut it down. With great, the great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon, which signifies trees even today if you look at the, at the Lebanese flag or the, uh, 
Is it, is it Lebanese? Actually, don't quote me on that. I'm just going to let that one go. He'll cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and, a, and Lebanon will fall like the majestic one. I think the Lebanese flag is the one that has a tree in it. And look what it says in verse 11, chapter, in chapter 11, verse 1. And there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. He says, my people have been rebellious. Israel has been rebellious. I'm going to cut the tree down. But there will come a savior. He will sprout up out of the stump of the tree that I have cut down. His name will be Jesus. And he will save his people from their sins. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. Who does that sound like? The spirit of counsel and might, and the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor. And decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. God is sovereign. Lastly, in salvation, we see here now why. Why is Simeon waiting for the consolation of Israel? Why is Simeon waiting for God to make things new? Why is Simeon so bound up with angst is because the last major picture that we got of the people of Israel was of a tree that has been cut down. And they need rescue. Desperately, they need rescue. And here is why it matters. You're in Isaiah 11, maybe. You've turned there. Maybe not. It'll be on the screen. Verse 9. They shall not hurt or destroy all in my holy mountain. And get this, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is the grand purpose of God, to cover the earth with his glory as the waters cover the sea. That makes sense of everything we see in the scriptures. That makes sense of why God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. Because in you is the image of God. In you is the knowledge of who I am. Be fruitful and multiply. Cover the earth with the glory that is mine. Cover the earth with it. Jeremiah thirty-three fifteen also uh, foresees this. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. Jesus, a righteous branch will, will spring up. He shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which I, it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. He goes on there in Jeremiah 33, either 31 or 33, and says, one day will come when they will no longer teach one another about the Lord because they will all know me. God's purpose from eternity past to eternity future is to make his glory known on the entire earth. One day people will no longer teach one another because whether in judgment or in salvation, they will know who Jesus is and they will know who God is. So here is why that matters for Christmas. 
Here's why that matters for Christmas. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Christmas is about the glory of God. It's about God sending into the earth the means by which many sons will come to glory. Christmas is about Jesus coming into the world, into this time that has been perfectly prepared for the gospel to explode and to save many for the glory of God that he may continue his purpose of filling the earth with his glory as the waters cover the sea. That's why you exist. That's why I exist. God has placed this plan in motion. So you you ask, what what does this mean for us today? Well, I want to pose that question back to you rhetorically, but think about it for, for just a second. What is the means today that God has ordained for his glory to go out to the ends of the earth? How has God, what has God given his people that it may be so? What has God said for us to do so that his glory may fill the earth? It's the Great Commission. That's how it happens today. There was a period of time when God said, Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. And just by definition, the the earth will be filled. But of course, sin came. Now God has entered into this rescue. He has sent his son Jesus. And now it is by the Great Commission, those who know Jesus can tell others about Jesus. So how does God receive this glory? When we, the creatures he made, you understand, we were made for worship. Everyone worships. Everyone worships something. Every one of us, at one point, worshiped something else. But now, hopefully, we worship Christ. So how does God receive glory? When those who worship him go. When those who worship him tell. John Piper says that missions exist because worship doesn't. Our job now is to find out where in the world is worship not happening because our God is worthy of all the glory that every human could ever give him. Where, does, where on this earth is our God not worshiped? Let's go there because he's worthy of that. Missions exist because worship doesn't. So today God is covering the earth with his glory as the waters cover the sea by means of us by means of the Great Commission. So here are a couple applications as we, as we bring our time to a close. First of all, God is sovereign in salvation, as we see in the person of Simeon. He preserved Simeon, kept him, a man righteous. One man seems one of a few who were expecting the Savior who would come. How was he still there? Because God is sovereign in salvation. He is sovereign to save. We can take great encouragement by this um, because we see that our God was behind the scenes the whole time preparing the heart of Simeon, calling him out, causing spiritual good in his heart. So we can take encouragement that when we go and when we share the gospel, we can take courage because we have a God who goes before us, who prepares hearts, who convicts of sins, And when they hear the gospel message and it makes sense to them by the power of the Holy Spirit, they come and they are saved. God is sovereign in salvation. We see this in the person of Simeon. We see it also in Acts chapter 18, verses 9 through 11. Think about this. If I can go to the book of of Acts chapter 18. 
verses 9 through 11, says this. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. And here's why. For I am with you, and no one will attack you or harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. In Corinth? God has many people in Corinth? Before Paul even went to preach the gospel? How is that possible? Because God goes before us and prepares hearts. He says, there are people in Corinth who, when you share, they will respond. Because I am moving on hearts even now before you even reach the city. And we can say that our God is a God who goes before us wherever we go. Across the street, across the world, preparing hearts. If people would just hear the gospel and repent and turn. And be saved. How you share the gospel. Here's the second point of application. How you share the gospel. How you give of your money. And your time. Toward the gospel. And how you go to other places. Perhaps far places. Perhaps places close. These things are not just attached to how much you love your church. Or how much you love others. It's attached to how greatly the glory of God has gripped your heart. How desperately do you want others to glorify God? How desperately do you want them to see God for who he is? How desperately do you want his glory to fill the earth? That's going to make all the difference in how you go, in how you give, in how you pray. Has the glory of God gripped your heart, believer. And perhaps you were here this morning and you recognize that you have lived for anything but the glory of God. That this driving passion to make God famous, he has not yet become famous in your heart. Your heart is a heart in which worship is not happening. And you recognize perhaps this morning that your heart is a heart in which missions must happen. The gospel must do its work. Perhaps you recognize this morning for the, for the first time that you are not like Simeon. That you're a sinner who has not yet been saved. Perhaps you recognize these things. You may disagree with me about God's standard of right and wrong. You may disagree with the scriptures because right now, You just love your sin. But I am here this morning to tell you this, that one day, even now, a man has come and will bring his work to a finish so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. That's what it says here. Behold, this child is appointed, this Jesus is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel for a sign that is opposed so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. You may be able to keep your sin to yourself, but you cannot keep it from God. He knows you. He wants you. And perhaps even this morning, he is putting a call on your heart to come to him, to turn away from your sin and to worship him for the rest of your days because he is more worthy than any idol you could ever carve. Would you come to him?
Would you turn? Please, turn. And believer, perhaps this means something for you as well. How does Christ this morning require you to realign his mission and your heart? Perhaps it's a financial thing. I don't know. Perhaps it's a a self-centeredness thing that the only reason you haven't told so-and-so about the gospel is because you're afraid of the implications of yourself that will come back on you. Perhaps it's, it's a thing that, that has to do with, with, um, with just mere obedience. I talked to the students Wednesday night. We kind of had a, a different lesson. And I said, you know, we go to conferences and we go to camps and we build big buildings and we gather in them And all the while we're talking about all the things that we need to do. Sometimes you just got to do it. Just, it's like Nike. Just do it. So we know, and we are accountable, and we know what to do. It's a matter of obedience. So I ask you this morning, I plead with you, would you obey Christ? Whatever that means for you, would you obey Christ? him. In a moment, I'm going to pray. Ethan is going to come, and we're going to have a short time of of just reflection and then response. If Christ, by the Holy Spirit this morning, has spoken to you, and you know that there is some kind of obedience required of you, perhaps you recognize this morning that you were a sinner outside of Christ, come. Today is the day of salvation. Do not harden your hearts. Do not harden your hearts. I'm going to give you that opportunity to respond, if you would pray with me. Lord, you are good, and we see this morning that you have a plan and a purpose that is far beyond us, and that plan and that purpose is to make your own name great. Lord, this would be audacious. This would be arrogant if it were anyone other than a perfect and holy God. But because you are perfect and holy, we recognize that it is good for us that your fame spread. It is good for us that we know who you are because you are the only one who is good and righteous. I pray, Lord, I must believe. I have to believe that in this room there is someone today. There are perhaps some today. In their hearts, worship is not happening because they have not yet come to know you for who you are. I pray, Lord, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, even even over the course of reading the scriptures this morning, they will agree with you. They will agree with you what is true of them. And that is that they have a need. And that need is for a perfect savior. They recognize that they must turn from their sins. Lord, I pray they would come, make that public, acknowledge you before men so that you will acknowledge them before God the Father. And I pray that for the believers in this room, Lord, I pray that with each passing week, we would grow in missional zeal. That things like a mission trip or things like an offering or things like giving to missionaries who have sacrificed it all would be to us an opportunity instead of an obligation. I pray that, Lord, for us, you would grip our hearts with the desire that others come to know the glory and the fame of Jesus Christ. Would you change our hearts, Lord? Help us to be captured. Help us to be enraptured by this one all-pervading purpose, the glory of God.
Change us, Lord. We ask in the name of Christ and is for his sake. Amen. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.